0: buck registries big buck podcast episode number 97 12 dead deer with special guest deer project leader dan bergeron new hampshire fish and game Big Buck Registry is a virtual museum of hunting stories. We preserve a piece of Americana by interviewing and recording hunters about their hunts and experiences from across the country. And who knows, maybe we'll learn a thing or two along the way that'll help us take our hunt to the next level.
1: Hey everybody, this is Kirsten Godfrey, the Kentucky Huntress. You're up for another amazing podcast with Jay and Dusty on the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. Hey, this is Matt Duff. And Jeff Danker. We're Major League Bowhunter, and you're listening to the best podcast on the Internet, the Big Buck Registry. Hi, this is Sean Luftal with Heartland Bowhunter. Hey, this is Michael Huntucker with Heartland Bowhunter. And you're listening to my favorite podcast on iTunes. The Big, Big Buck, Buck, Buck Registry's, Registry's Big, Big Buck, Buck podcast. podcast.
0: Welcome to the show. This is Jay Scott, your host of the Big Buck Registries Big Buck Deer Hunting Podcast. And I am also joined by the Buckeye, the deer naming legend dusty phillips from ohio what's up dusty
2: oh man it's been a great week dude yeah
0: what uh, what happened <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> what happened about 10 and a half inches 10 and three quarter inches about an inch inch and a an spurs that's what happened
0: boom nice. boom got yourself come a lot running weird, in come
2: come running in like a like a I don't know what man I mean, it's come running in. It was pretty crazy. One of the best experiences of my life, uh, shooting a big old gobbler here in Ohio. So, yeah, it's been a great week. You know, it's uh, turkey season here in Ohio, and I know you're a little jealous because turkey hasn't opened in New Hampshire
0: yet. Well, yeah, it opens tomorrow.
2: But I'm chasing number two, hopefully this weekend. See if I can't lay the hammer, lay the hammer on old chubby gobbler.
0: That's awesome, man. Now, you used uh, a firearm that's been in your family for a while, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Yeah, it's actually, it was, uh, my, my wife's grandfather's shotgun. Um, uh, looked it up. It's a, I think it's a central arms is where it's, who it's made by. And, uh, it, the manufacturing date was like from 1908 to 1930. So it's got to be somewhere in there. Um, uh, I didn't get a chance to look up serial numbers in a particular book to see exactly what year it was, uh, manufactured, but yeah, it was single shot 12 gauge and just shooting, uh, two and three quarter number four turkey loads.
0: That's pretty cool, man. Congratulations. Yeah, that's your first you. bird, right? Yeah,
2: definitely first bird. That's
0: fantastic. It is quite a rush. And it's different than deer hunting, that's for sure. But uh,
2: Yeah, it's uh it's, it's an accomplishment that if you've never shot one, I definitely encourage you to get out there and and you know, there's no mistakes in turkey hunting, really.
0: We do have a couple things, a couple of announcements dusty. Um one is that we have a brand new podcast app that you can download. It's an official Big Buck Deer Hunter two thousand fifteen app that you can actually search in the app store on iTunes now. How cool is that, Jay? Is that not the best? Yeah, you know, it's
2: one of the things that we just added to uh what wanting our fans to be able to get the app for yes. the
0: Big Buck registry. The it the app is live on iTunes now. So if you're listening to this on the podcast app, you can actually go to the app store, type in Big Buck Deer Hunter two thousand fifteen, and you'll see our Our uh, app that we built just so you can listen to the show. Um, you can also find it. And I don't know if it's quite there yet, but you can find it on Google Play and on the, um, Android apps. So they're, they're all there on every platform you can imagine. Uh, but yeah. So if you are iTunes listener and you'd like to uh, switch out of the podcast app to listen to the show, we actually have our own app. So check that out and it'll be, uh, it'll be at bigbuckregistry.com forward slash app if you want to check it out. We had one caller this week, uh, Dusty. I want to play this for you real quick.
1: Hi, I'm uh, Brad Boswell, Greenwood, Indiana. I shot a uh, 135 in uh Jackson County, Indiana. When the arrow passed through the deer, it bounced off the ground, hit another doe, and killed it. So, got a 135 and a doe in one shot. Uh Thank you very much. You guys do a great job.
0: How about that? Very cool. Imagine that bouncing off the ground and then hitting the dough too very cool well thank you brad for that story with that 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 line is always there for anybody that wants to call in their quick deer story 724-613-2825 724-613-2825 always there open hotline open deer hunting story telephone number for you to call in and tell us your story we'll play right here on the air every time uh one other announcement is that we still have the pledge page up and going so if you'd like the pledge for the show it's bigbuckregistry.com forward slash pledge you can go there read all about the big buck registry how we got started what what it means to us our mission statement and and why we need your help to keep this show up and running and pay the bills so bigbuckregistry.com forward slash pledge. Dusty who do we have on the show today? You know we're gonna we're gonna talk to a deer biologist Jay We've had some great deer biologists on the show. Oh, absolutely. Grant Woods, uh, Jim Stickles. Dr. Carl Miller. Dr. Carl Miller. All these great guys uh, have been on the show. Now we've got Dan Bergeron, who's the Deer Project Leader for the State of New Hampshire and a deer biologist. And uh, the reason we have him on the show, we've got a few different topics we're going to cover, but uh, the big elephant in the room as i'm calling it is the uh, 12 dead deer that died of enterotoxemia in southern new hampshire over the winter just a couple months ago uh, due to a feeding situation that went awry yeah you know it's it's uh, one of the things that it was
2: huge viral there was a lot of unanswered qu- uh, questions with that situation and you know the 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 biologist uh, agreed to join with us and and talk a little bit more detail on what we can do as hunters and conservationists and uh, as people that like to feed deer, uh, even if you're not a hunter, this can relate to something that you're doing. So, you know, with that, with that being said, that uh, Dan's going to be able to break down a, a lot of subjects that are very important in keeping your deer alive in the wintertime.
0: Yeah. And he gets into, you know, where this is an issue and where it's not like geographically and definitely in Northern States, this can become an issue where the snow runs deep for a long time. Absolutely. Um, we're going to cover a little bit about the uh, state of fishing game financially and what, what they're doing to try to raise money. Uh, talk about the potential moose hunt in New Hampshire that might be canceled. He clarifies a lot of that stuff. And we, we get into, um, the, the, the actual subject matter of can New Hampshire actually be a, a big rack deer hunting state like Ohio. And, uh, I have my doubts and we'll see what he says
2: yeah you know you just you, you you don't know until you actually talk to somebody that's uh out there doing the studies and, and getting the factual information
0: right. well we, we cover a lot of great topics we go deep get to some the inside scoop on a lot of these these hot topics that came up especially with the, the deer feeding catastrophe out there in uh in new hampshire and the southern new hampshire during the winter but let's uh, let's get dan on let's do it Dan Bergeron, welcome to the Big Buck Registries Big Buck Deer Hunting Podcast. How are you, Dan?
1: Not bad, so thanks for having me. We'd just like to
0: talk to you, Dan. It's uh, it's an honor to have somebody from my home state of New Hampshire on the show. We don't get that all that often. And, Very uh, good. You're unique because not only are you in New Hampshire, but you're the deer project leader for the state of New Hampshire. You're a deer biologist, and you know a lot about deer, which is our favorite subject. Okay. So. Thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, absolutely. So, Dan, the the elephant in the room is the 12 dead deer that went viral all over Facebook, Outdoor Life, every magazine I can think of. There was an article online about the 12 dead deer that died in New Hampshire due to a feeding problem. Mm -hmm. And we want to get to the bottom of what happened over there. What's the inside scoop? What can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so so a little bit of background on that is, um, I received a call from one of our regional biologists um, who'd gotten a call from one of the conservation officers um, who covers that uh, kind of southeastern portion of the state on the seacoast. Yeah, um, he uh, it was actually relatively close to where he lives. Um, one of his neighbors actually called him. Um, he'd been walking in the woods and came upon uh, you know four four or so dead deer. Um, seemed like a strange thing to him, just kind of how they died and the fact that they all looked you know pretty healthy um so he called our regional biologist they went out to to investigate and as they went out, they just kind of started finding one one deer after another as they they kept kind of checking the area um they necropsied they field necropsied um eight of the deer that they found um and again there was you know there was no sign of predation on any of these deer um you know that some of them had died at different different stages, so you know some might have been a little older than others but but uh you know the the most they saw in any of them was maybe a little bit of chewing on the hind end but but really no sign of predation um they checked um you know uh, fat on them and and femur marrow fat, which was all all good for that time of year, um, no signs of trauma from vehicle collisions and really, the main thing that they noticed was was uh bloody diarrhea. Mm. Um And then, when they got into the intestines um same thing there was there was blood in the intestines where typically you should be finding, um you know pelleted scat and things like that um and then also um you know just the the rumen or the stomach all all the chambers of the of the rumen were um, just completely full of that a number of different things but but pre- predominantly um corn what appeared to be pelleted feed um a grain of some sort and then um and also hay. So, okay. oh. We we ended up taking one of those deer to a um, to our state vet um, or the um uh, veterinary pathologist who, who did a, a more in-depth necropsy and confirmed that they died from enterotoxemia, um, which is a condition um, that that's pretty well documented in deer. Um, and it, it, what happens is when they're fed large quantities of of um, food side carbohydrates, Kind of suddenly, um, it, um, there's a number of different things it can do. But this particular condition, enterotoxemia, it, it builds up, um, causes a, a buildup of this specific type of bacteria in their intestine, um, which releases toxins, which can kill them.
0: Hmm. Well, what uh, what town was this in?
1: So they were found in Southampton, okay. um, New Hampshire, which is down on the seacoast. So, um, you know, there's a number of reasons that, that we recommend to people not to feed deer. Um, you know, this, this being one of them, there's another condition called lactic acidosis that, that's, yeah. that's kind of similar, but, um, that's, that's a buildup of lactic acid, which kind of disrupts the, the chemistry in the stomach and, and makes it so they can't digest their food properly. But, um, this particular thing, it wasn't as though there was anything wrong with the food. It was how the food was introduced. Um, you know, as deer's, as a deer's diet changes kind of gradually and naturally with, with natural foods as the seasons change. Um, it has microorganisms in its stomach that also change that help them digest those different food sources. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they have specific organisms in their stomach in the winter that help them um, digest things like, you know, woody browse and things like that, which is primarily what they should be eating. Um, so, when they're rapidly introduced something like corn or, or grains or, or, or really any drastic change in their diet that time of year, um, they don't, they don't have the the bacteria in their stomach to deal with it. The more it can cause a, a buildup of a specific type of bacteria, um, which can lead to their deaths. And it's happened, you know, it's, it's, it's been documented most of, um, most of deer's natural range where they exist.
0: Gotcha. So this was, this occurred in, what was it February of 2015?
1: Um, yeah. I believe it was back in February sometime. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. And, and what, one of the things that we had going on here, which I think kind of helped lead to this, is we had a – February was, was a very severe um, month this winter for us. It was right. one of the most severe Februarys we saw. So it, winter kind of came. late. So I think people – there was probably a lot of people that started putting food out late as opposed to starting earlier on in the season. Um, and, and when you put that food out late, it, it can be dangerous, and you can see things like this happen.
0: Now, that's a good point. That's something I want to talk about is, you know, we – New Hampshire this year, we had over 48 inches of snow that Mm -hmm. fell and stayed, and I recall being, uh, I've got game camera pictures of bare ground as late as uh, late December, like the last week in December, and then it started to come a little bit in January, but by the end of January and through all of February, it just piled on. Yeah. The temperatures were fairly brutal here and there, but definitely the snow was, was impactful, and probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, I'm just trying to understand the situation here. The snow covered the ground to the point where it, a deer couldn't get some of the natural browse that it would be used to. So it's almost like you've got this interaction between humans and deer that went went awry and that good intentions probably to try to help the deer. But in fact, because of the, the deer's natural, abilities to digest and the things that are just naturally found in its gut the the organisms the symbiotic organisms that it needs to help break down food to survive changed mm-hmm. throughout the season and it was so late into the season that it all those microorganisms that could potentially digest corn weren't there is that kind of accurate
1: yeah that's yeah that's yeah that's definitely accurate and again you know so so for example if if someone had started feeding deer corn um, you know right at the end of the fall and 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 kept it up throughout the winter um it it wouldn't um, it wouldn 't develop this condition this you know enterotoxemia or, or lactic acidosis because it would it would have those organisms in its stomach that it needs to digest that type of food um you know it 's why um, it's why for example deer don 't don't, don't there 's no concern over this in the um in the in the fall or or the summer or anything when they 're getting into corn and in fields. Um, because that, you know, that's a naturally available food that time of year. So they, you know, they slowly get introduced to it as it, as it comes out. Um, so, so they can, their stomachs can adjust to it. Um, we still don't recommend, um, you know, even though there's, there's ways that you can lessen some impacts like that where you won't get these conditions, we still don't recommend people feed because, um, you know, there's, there's a number of other negative side effects to feeding. Um, one of them is increased vehicle collisions, which, um, in the northern part of the state, um, there's a, there's a lot of feeding that goes on, and our conservation officer up there is pretty much, a, he, last I heard, he's getting close to a hundred rogue-killed deer, um in the northern part of, in, in basically the town of Pittsburgh, in the far northern part of New Hampshire. Right. Um feeding's kind of become a, a competition between people to see who can get the most in their yard. Um it's drawing them out of the deer yards, which, um it, is, is difficult for us because, um, really long-term for deer to survive in New Hampshire, we need quality winter habitat. And uh, most of what we do to try and manage that habitat is through cooperative agreements with foresters. Um, over 80% of the forest land in the state is privately owned. So as people are putting food out and drawing deer out of these deer, it's tough to convince these people how important they are if if, uh, if they're not seeing as many deer in, in, in the winter. And, um, you know, long-term feeding isn't really a way that, that we can sustain deer in New Hampshire. It's really going to depend on quality habitat, which, uh, which is tough to convince people to to actively manage or keep on the ground um, if, if they're not seeing deer in those yards.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. So instead of opening up a, a, a bag of corn and dumping it in your backyard when the snow's f- four feet deep, you probably should spend all year round just uh, trying to enhance the natural habitat that's there so that they will, yeah. go, they'll go and stay there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, certainly if you're a large enough landowner and, and, you know, there's other benefits to that. You know, if you're doing habitat management, you're going to be benefiting other wildlife species as well. But, um, you know, there's, you know, little things people can do. You know, you can, you can chop down some trees on your property. Um, you know, if, if you got some areas that they can get at that, um, you know, the tops of the trees in the wintertime, um, you know, you can promote different types of stands. You know, certainly if you have some good softwood cover, you can promote that. Um, maybe place some small cuts near that for browse for them, and um, you know promote maybe growth of some oaks if you get an oak stand. Um, so you, you know try and promote acorn, um, more acorn crops. But but that certainly long term is going to be a lot more beneficial to, than than putting corn. Down. And uh, you know a lot of these people spend quite a bit of money; and they're putting tons of corn out. So you know that, I I feel that that money could be better directed towards some habitat management on their property as opposed to just putting the feed out. Right.
0: Uh, I've seen corn or bought corn before and it's it's not cheap and it's uh it it's got to add up especially in the quantities that you're talking about in pittsburgh um
1: oh absolutely yeah yeah and to do it you know to to do it at least you know i hate to say the right way because again there's so many other negative side effects but um to to do it to lessen some of the some of those impacts you know you you gotta you gotta start early um you gotta put a lot out and you gotta keep it going because uh, once you start you know you really can't stop and um, you know we we're we 're concerned about disease transmission fortunately we don 't have c w d in New Hampshire yet, but um you know there 's a number of other diseases that that can be transmitted from deer to deer contact um, One of the things that 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 's a concern is rabies um, right. um, there 's been some cases in New York and Pennsylvania where they believe deer have contracted rabies through sharing feed sites with things like raccoons. Um, I had a trail camera up in my backyard right, just on an apple tree and uh, you know I've, got a video of a deer and a raccoon fighting over a couple of apples under one tree, so um, you know, it's it's not a hard stretch to believe that stuff like that goes on, and, and you know, in the last few years we've seen, you know, there's been some states that have been seeing deer with rabies, and hmm. um, there's other, you know, fibromas, and you know, the deer warts, and um, mange, deer can get mange, and those are all things that can be spread through contact. Most of them aren't fatal to the deer but but certainly it, it decreases their overall health and certainly it decreases their appearance right
0: gotcha one of the things that that I wanted to kind of point out is you know I I, I in my, my town I get a call when there's a, a deer that goes down fairly frequently because I'll go and I'll take it and I'll make meat out of it if I can or, or or use the the carcass if it's so beat up by from getting hit by a car I'll use it on a coyote pile or something like that or give it to a coyote hunter I might hunt yeah. with now and then. And one of when there was uh, last winter, there was a situation where um, there was a, a clear deer trail going across the road, and mm-hmm. there was a, a small buck hit. And I, I called fishing and game, and I was allowed to pick it up. And come to find out that this person that was feeding deer on the other side of the road, and their intentions were to help to keep them alive, but in fact they had right. really they were responsible for the death of at least 3 deer that the fishing game knows of because they yeah. had to cross from a habitat that i know for sure is great wintering habitat cross yeah. the road to get to the feed otherwise they probably wouldn't go there so yeah and the intentions was to save them and in fact they ended up killing too many
1: yeah and that's you know that's 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 what we see pretty frequently and and you know when this press release came about out about the deer that died in southampton we started getting a lot of calls um about dead deer and um we received a call, a similar situation where there were two roadkill deer that, that a gentleman had gotten uh, possession tags for. And when he when he was uh, processing them, he, he noticed a lot of corn in the stomach. So he gave us a call. Uh, myself and one of the other biologists went out and, and uh, checked into it. And um, he told us how, you know, year after year, deer are getting hit in the same spot. So we you know, similar thing, found a trail that crossed the road. Um, followed it a little ways through really poor winter cover, you know, an area that, that typically you wouldn't expect to find that amount of deer activity. Um, and it led right up to a feed pile. So, so we got another situation where there's, you know, several deer there that we know about that, that were likely wouldn't have been crossing that road, right. and Headed up into the feed site.
0: So it's almost like if you're gonna do it, and it's, you really shouldn't, but if you're, and I'm talking about New Hampshire now in other parts of the country, like where Dusty lives in Ohio, Feeding deer might not be a problem because corn is available pretty much all year round there. And mm-hmm. there isn't a snow cover, if I'm not mistaken, that would really keep them from getting to the, to corn. Does that sound right? So, so different areas will have different habitat needs for the deer.
1: Yeah, cer- certainly, certainly all those risks aren't there dependent on, on where you might live. So, so things could be different. Um, you know, certainly the the disease transmission risk is always there, um, and and I'm fairly certain Ohio is a CWD state. Yeah, um, yeah that's correct. Um, so that would you know that would be a concern in a state like Ohio. Um, um, I'm you know I'm I'm one of my major concerns kind of overall just managing deer is is, um, is threats like CWD and things like that. Mostly because it's it's just spread so rapidly in a pretty short period of time that that I imagine it's only a matter of time before it gets here um, as opposed to Um, Whether or not we're ever going to find it, I I feel it. So it's just a matter of time. Um, We're we're fortunate that we haven't found it yet, but, but, uh, you know, always, always vigilant, hoping it doesn't show up.
0: But, um, yeah, you don't want it to ever show up. So if you're going to feed deer, and and again, I'm not promoting this. I don't think it's necessarily a good idea, especially in in New Hampshire. Um, probably goes for Maine, Vermont, all the northern states to just get a pile of snow all year round. Especially when we're talking about, is, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's enterotoxemia is what we're talking about here. Is that the? Yeah, group?
1: enterotoxemia and, and lactic acidosis are really the two conditions specifically related to the feed. Yeah. Okay. So
0: basically you've got a condition where the, the bacteria that build up in the stomach because there are no digestive whatever to break down corn, um, increase in the stomach and throw off these toxins, which can then lead to extensive bleeding and black uh no digestion and and just the problems go on and on from there
2: i'm gonna bump in there
0: you
2: you was talking a little bit dan about like i said we're not promoting uh, winter feeding in new hampshire by no means what is something that is a better feed to use that will lower the chances of the
0: deer getting sick from eating it or or is there a, a feed Better than corn or doesn't it matter
1: well it it, it kind of, it all it's you know it's all dependent on on when and how you're introducing it and what else they've they've been eating um so you know certainly if there's if there's something out there that that's uh, not quite as high high in carbohydrates but um you know there's less of a likelihood if it's introduced slowly um you know those those are things that that lessen those impacts but um um, but again, there's, you know, there's a number of other things like vehicle collisions that no matter what you're feeding them, um, if it's drawn on the crossroads more frequently, it, it's, uh, you know, it's still a risk there. So, um, you know, I know there's, um, I'm not, I'm not too familiar with what's in some of the commercial feeds. Um, I know there's some that that try and, uh um, you know, that try and mix it up where it's not just straight grains that, you know, they put fiber and things like that in it. Um, so something like that would would potentially have less of a possibility, but um, there's some studies that suggest that even it's not necessarily just carbohydrates that, that just rapid shifts in diet of any type um, can lead to those conditions. So and it's it's a risk. It's um, particularly if you're or mainly if you're if you're introducing it suddenly is really the big deal. And that was that was the case here. You know, the food was introduced suddenly to these deer, so they just they just weren't prepared for it. But um, you know, I always hate to, uh, I always hate to, uh, talk about proper ways to do it just because, uh, um, there's, there's no way to get rid of all the, the potential negative side effects. So right. I feel yeah. like when I start, start giving better ways to do it, people take it as kind of a tacit sign that, that it's, it's, that it's okay to do it. So
2: right, completely. Yeah. You know, and the major thing that, that, Reading articles and, you know, listen to you is that don't wait till middle of January. You got three foot of snow to dump out a bag of corn. That's not the correct way to do it.
1: Yeah. That's, that's certainly, that's certainly the most dangerous uh, thing to do in, in terms of, cause, cause you get, you know, you're just adding one more thing on top of all the other possible negative side effects. So, you know, starting, starting early and, and, and doing it throughout the winter. And, um, but, but, you know, again, um, if you're going to do it, be prepared to spend a lot of money. If you're going to, you know, if you're going to do it to try and lessen uh, most of the impacts, and you know, really these things, you know, um, um, you know, unless you got a unless you got a large area far away from roads where you're willing to truck tons and tons of um, feed out throughout the entire winter,
0: I was going to say, any, you know,
1: yeah, it's like issues. If, if
0: the ideal scenario, if you're going to feed, is to do it for a very long period of time. Starting probably in the fall and carrying it all the way through the spring at a, at a minimum. Yeah. Car- bringing it, bringing it a, uh, to a spot where there are no roads within uh, a, the general vicinity, so there's no chance of them crossing anywhere. And then almost like you got to spread it out like in small piles and and get it to where they are and where they don't mm-hmm. want to leave, but not put it in one giant pile. Like you got to spread it out amongst a, a, lar- a fairly large area.
1: Yeah, and that, that's certainly, um, you know, that's certainly, there's, there's, there's some states that have, you know, in the past, they've put out, um, kind of, you know, we don't recommend it, but if you're going to do it, this is how to do it type of, right. type of brochures. Um, which, you know, I, I go back and forth on that because again, I feel like as soon as you start telling people, you know, the correct way to do it, they kind of take it as a, um, they don't take you seriously when you, when you talk about the mm-hmm. risks. So, um, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword when you, when you start talking about the correct way to feed.
0: Let's, let's ask the ultimate question here, Dan. If you didn't bring corn to them or didn't make it available to them, would they survive anyway?
1: Um, yeah, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's tough to say. Um, it's probably on an individual deer basis, but, but certainly, um, most of the time, probably, yes, they probably would. Um, I'm not going to say that there's not situations where feet, um, doesn't help certain deer. Um, you know, it's, it's tough to, it's tough to judge. Um, um, you know, if this deer would have survived or this deer wouldn't have. But, uh, you know, they're adapted to survive these, these, uh, these severe winters. Um, you know, they, they, they did so long before people started putting tons and tons of corn out for them. Um, and, you know, and they, and they did fine. Um, and, and, you know, my point of view is these are wild animals. Um, you know, if, if, if we need to, if, if the only way we can sustain them on the landscape is by providing, um, you know, human provided food, then, then we've done something wrong as managers. Um, if, right. if we if we're dependent on feeding them human foods, gotcha. Um, you know they're, they're wild animals and they should be treated as such. Is is, is my point of view on that.
0: Uh, Dan, were you able to visit the site of the incident?
1: Um, not that specific site, um, but shortly after that, again we started getting a lot of phone calls. So um, there was another incident in um, Guilford, New Hampshire, um, where a woman had actually emailed us pictures of a deer that was in her yard. Um, the deer was. Uh, basically laying in her backyard very close to the house, um, you know, looking looking, like she was in pretty poor shape, um, uh, very uh, lethargic. Um, uh, By the time somebody got back here, the deer had already died. Um, One of our conservation officers went and and checked it out and, and again, noticed bloody diarrhea. Um, So he contacted us and uh, we performed a necropsy on that one. And again, that one was another one that died from enterotoxemia. Um, um, You know, we, all the organs were in good shape. She had good body fat um pregnant with twin fawns um, really good marrow fat content but uh stomach full of hay and corn and um and again no no uh no in the in the intestines and they were just all full of blood wow. so again that was a that was another one so that one um that one I was able to to get out on scene and we went out to where the deer was found and um you know look for a feeding site we did find one feeding site with a small amount of corn and um, we were trying to locate another where there might have been hay um, but it was in a kind of a you know small suburban area where there was a lot of um, a lot of houses with with forest patches in between so it was probably just a matter of you know getting into the right the right spot where 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 the bigger feed sites were, but um um so yeah, you know it you know I don't think that particularly these two um these two conditions are are overly common. I don't think we're losing a lot of deer this way um uh, I don't think it's anything that's driving the population down um, um but but it probably happens more so than we realize because again um you know unless unless you have a really large incident like the one that we had in Southampton um. You know, if you're just finding one or two dead deer, a lot of, if they're even found before they're scavenged or, or, or whatever, uh, you know, a lot of people don't, you know, it doesn't ring a lot of alarm bells when you find one dead deer in a winter, um, or two dead deer in a winter by themselves, particularly if it's, you know, if it's a relatively severe winter, so. Right.
0: Gotcha. Now, do, do the, the people who were involved in the incident, is, is it illegal to, to, to put out corn or is it, is just something that, isn't it illegal
1: to no, so, try to regulate it? Yeah, it's not illegal. Um, you know, we discourage it. We have informational um pamphlets that we hand out and, and we try and send out, you know, we put um reminders on our Facebook page and press releases um during the winter just to remind people of the risks of doing it. Um, you know, the the there were I believe up to four feed sites that were located um in Southampton where, where the deer were found dead. Um you know, it was, it was an unfortunate case of, of, you know, um, people were, people thought they were helping. They didn't, they weren't aware of the risks. Um, and, uh, you know, they were devastated when they found out. Um, they stopped immediately. And, uh, so, so, if, you know, it's, it would be legal if, if you intentionally set out to, to kill the animal. Um, but that certainly was not the case here. Um, you know, this is the case of people, you know, thinking that they were helping, not knowing the, yeah. not knowing the risks. You know, the good thing is that um, there, it did get so much publicity that, Um, You know, a lot of people are are more familiar about some of the risks than this one in particular um, because it's not very common. Um, You know, the vehicle collisions are much more common, I think, than something like this. This is just something that, that, you know, kind of brought um, brought it to the forefront of people's minds. Right. Gotcha.
0: Now, one of the things, I couldn't help notice this, is whenever there was a post about it, we posted it on our site um and other sites seemed like there was always one or two people that just said this was complete bs oh yeah what do you have to say to those people
1: um you know there's there's certain people that no matter what you tell them um they're they're not going to believe you they're they're setting their ways um i mean this is this particular incidence you know you know we field necropsy the deer we had a we had a veterinary pathologist that confirmed it on another deer um you know this is this this is something that happens, it's well documented throughout, um, you know, throughout whitetail range. Um, it's also a condition that's, that's, uh, that's fairly well documented in livestock, you know, sudden changes in diet and and ruminants like that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's really, you know, this, it's really not up for debate. What killed these deer? We know what killed them. Um, so, so to say that it's, you know, that's not something that could happen. Um, um, you know, it's just, it's well documented. It's well known. Um, A lot of people say, you know, I've been feeding deer for years. I see the same one over and over again. Um, You know, it's got a specific mark on it, so I know I'm not hurting them. Um, Which, which I, you know, may be true for for some of those deer. Um, But you know, when you're feeding 50 deer, um, there's no way you're you're going to be able to tell individual deer. And uh, deer move around a lot in the winter. Some of them migrate, you know, miles upon miles from from deer yards to. Um, particularly the deer yards but then from deer yards to feed sites and um, to, you know to think that you know what's happening to every one of those deer like for example this one individual deer that we found that um, I'm sure if someone was feeding 12 deer and one of them went missing they, they probably wouldn't wouldn't think much of it so right. um you know again you know the hundred deer that that get hit um and it I and mean, that's an annual occurrence you know Pretty much every winter we're getting anywhere from 50 to 100 deer in Pittsburgh that are getting hit on Route 3 crossing, um, crossing to get to feed sites. And, you know, some of those deer might be crossing the road anyway, but certainly not that, certainly not that volume of deer. Um, you know, Pittsburgh, New Hampshire, it's, uh, Route 3 in Pittsburgh, New Hampshire is not a heavily traveled road. Um, so to, to be seeing that type of that volume of, it's not a heavily traveled road and there's, there's not high deer densities in Pittsburgh. So, you know, to be seeing, that volume of, of uh, vehicle collisions, um, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that, that a lot of those are due to feeding. Right.
0: And, and those deer yards are tremendously large, if I'm not mistaken. I spent some time up there a few years ago, and it's just when you find a yard, there's like 100, 200 deer there sometimes.
1: Yeah, partic- particularly in the northern part of the state where there's kind of some larger uh, complexes. I mean, in, in, in that area of the state, you know, we got deer migrating down from Canada to get to some of these yards right. um, you know, across the border. And, um one of our biologists has, you know, followed deer trails, you know, 20 miles or, you know, and, and then just got tired and <laughs> couldn't do it anymore. Uh, so, you know, these deer are moving around a lot. And, you know, that's another thing to consider is, that, uh, is, is deer movement. And so, you know, you could have a situation where, you know, you thought you were doing everything the right way. You started feeding um, early on in the fall. You, you continued it through the winter um, into the spring. Um, in which case, you know, the deer that have been consistently coming there should be fine, at least in terms of the, these two conditions. Um, but when the winter starts to break up, deer start to move around a lot. So you can have a deer come from a few miles away that never came to your feed site all winter, um, and he doesn't have those bacteria in his stomach to, to handle the, the, the corn or the grain that you have out. Um, and now all of a sudden you got new deer coming to that site late in the winter that, that weren't uh, introduced to it early enough, and, and they could be dying and, and again, those might be deer that, you know, you weren't familiar with, um, while you were watching them, feeding them, and, um, you know, they could move off, die away from your, you know, away from your, your feed site, and you'd never know about it. Gotcha. That's fascinating.
0: So what, what should we be doing, if we're not gonna feed deer, what should we be doing, um, with our habitats? So do you have some, some tips and pointers on what we can do, especially in the northern states, to enhance the, the wintering habitats for these deer? Yes,
1: yeah, so, I mean, it's, in large part, um, you know, most of it's going to be large landowners um, in the northern part of the state, really, you know, you're going to need some sizable, um, some sizable portions of land to, um, you're going to need some, you know, you know your typical, your typical gear yard is, you know, the primary thing you're looking for is, is mature softwood cover, um, you know, dense, um, you know, a dense canopy there so that, that it's trapping the snow um, and, and, you know, you're going to need, um, you know, whether it's your, for a number of landowners that, you know, they can kind of work together, but, um, you know, that, we got some, some sites in the northern part of the state that, um, you know, they're getting to the age now where they're, they're dying off. Um, so, you know, you need to, you need to conserve some of those older stands, but you also have to have some other stands online that are, that are, you know, that younger, that, that when those stands start to, you know, when you need to go in and thin those, um, that you got new stands that are going to be providing cover when you go in and do some work in those. Um, you know, if you can do some cutting, um, some clear cutting, um, it, you know, adjacent to those areas, um, you know, to provide browse for them, um, that's important. Um, so it's things like that, particularly in the northern part of the state. Um, you know, it's 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 difficult for small landowners um, to do stuff, but but again, you know, if you're, uh, you know, if you know you're near one of these areas, you know, anything you can do to kind of add to it, um, you know, if you can keep some uh you know keep some softwood open that might act as a corridor from one property to the other, that's helpful. Um, you know, if you're adjacent to a large chunk of uh softwood cover and, and you got some you don't have softwoods, but you know perhaps you do you can do some cutting that might uh, create some browse them in the winter. Um, you know, things like that. And um in New Hampshire um in New Hampshire Fish and Game um partially funds a position over at with with the University of New Hampshire with Cooperative Extension where we have an extension I'm um, a wildlife specialist who's also a forester, um, who, who knows, um, a lot about, uh, a lot about deer and a lot about deer wintering areas. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he's happy to help landowners and give them tips on forestry practices they can do and, and different management they can do on their property to, uh, to create habitat for deer. Gotcha. Very cool.
0: Well, excellent. Well, thanks for bringing some light to, to that whole subject. It's, uh, I think, you know, we read about it. We, we kept reading the same article over and over and we really wanted to talk to somebody that knew it from the inside. Um, so yeah. that, that clears a lot of stuff up. Dust, you get anything else you want to add to that or any questions no, about I, that subject? No,
2: that was a great. Uh, great conversation about the situation that happened there. Cool.
0: Dan, let's move on to fish and game itself. Uh, you work for fish and game as if <laughs> I'm not mistaken and I'm, I'm frequently getting emails from fish and game about a hearing that's coming up or has already occurred or, something that's coming up that is trying to keep fish and game funded. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know a lot about what's going on over there. Can you fill yeah. us in on, on the, the inside scoop?
1: Yeah, so, so you know, we're not unlike, um, you know, many other states. Um, you know, the most fish and game departments uh, at some point, you know, some, some uh, agencies have, have found a way to move away from this. But, um, you know, primarily our funding comes from, from hunting and fishing licenses and, and, uh, pretty much nationwide. Um, there's, there's been a declining trend in license sales. So, um, you know, when that's your primary source of funding uh, and sales keep dropping off, it's, it's kind of tough to keep pace. Um, on top of, um, you know, declines in license sales, uh, there's, we've also kind of been, um, additionally work is, is, you know, kind of added up over the years, um, uh, particularly with, you know, things like law enforcement with search and rescue. Um, that that's a pretty sizable chunk of money that that really there's no funding source for. Hmm. Um, so so really costs um, costs have been increasing and, and, and revenues have been have been declining over the years. Um, so it's uh, it's it's difficult to keep keep pace. And um, you know we have a our, our fishing game fund, which which was kind of at one point you know a, a source of money to kind of dip into is. Um, has basically just been eroding over the years as we haven 't been able to keep up with costs and uh, and have been taking less and less money in um you know the department's done a lot of things um trying to trying to cut costs and um there's you know a lot of people have been retiring and those positions are are um, basically going unfilled um so you get a lot more work um kind of getting dispersed a, among a, a lot fewer people um and we've you know we've done a we've done a good job um Kind of keeping things running as they always have been um which which I guess unfortunately the public you know it wasn't quite as obvious that, that maybe we were having as many issues as we were because we were still providing all the services that that we usually do um The issues become now that that will basically're to the point that uh um you know if if we don't get another source of funding or we can't increase revenues one way or another that uh you know it's gonna get to the point where uh, we're gonna need to lay off more full time people and uh those services are, are gonna have to take a hit and that uh, we're not gonna be able to provide everything that, that we have historically um to the residents of the state. So um there there's um the big thing right now really is there's um um with the the, the budget, the state's budget, um there was a lot of stuff that our director and, and um you know a number of other people had, had kind of worked out with the governor to uh of ways to kind of fill some of these these gaps with funding. Um, You know, one of the things was was uh, to allow the director um, a little more authority to to set fees on his own. Um, Right now, those any fee changes have to be done through the legislature, and and, you know, uh, legislators legislators typically don't like to start talking about fee increases, particularly if it's an election year. So, Um, (laughs) good point. um, So it's you know, it's things like that. Um, We have not had a license fee increase, I believe, since. 2003 or so, so it's been, uh, over 13 years, if I'm not mistaken, since our last license increase. Um, and again, you know, i um, like everybody else, you know, gas prices go up, heating, um, heating costs for our buildings, um, you know, all the work that we do at the hatcheries, the, the, I know the cost of fish food alone, um, you know, there's things you don't typically think about, but, um, all those costs have gone up and, and, uh, we just haven't been able to keep pace with, uh, with our traditional funding sources. Gotcha.
0: So you, the, the goal is to be able to raise more money through licensing. Is that correct?
1: That's, well, that's one of them. Um, there's a number, of, there's a number of other things that, that were in there. Um, um, I know, and again, I don't, I, I should probably know better. Um, uh, but, uh, I kind of leave that to, to the, the people who know, know more about finances than I do, I stick to the deer stuff.
0: Yeah, but, no, uh, I don't blame
1: you. I understand. Yeah, but no, there, there's a number of things they're looking at. Um, you know, there's there's been talk about, um, you know, different ways to get um, non-hunters um, um, to kind of help pay some of the costs for, for um, you know, because really everybody in the state benefits from, from the, the work that we do um you know through whether it's wildlife watching or you know access to lakes for for fishing or, or just for kayaking or canoeing in general um so there's been talk about you know um, maybe you know small permit fees for for things like canoes or kayaks to generate some money and, and different funding sources like that um one of the other things is uh, you know potentially a portion of uh, maybe the room room and meals tax and that the state has, but, um, you know, the issue is that we're, we're not the only um, state agency who's, who's um, experienced this stuff either. And, and, um, so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people sitting around the table and, and really not enough to go around. Uh, but, uh, so we're we're working at it but but you know the more really the you know the best thing that you know people that you know kind of understand what the department provides um you know we can we can call legislators all they want all we want but um it doesn't really do much you know they they kind of know what we you know that we're going to be asking for more money but um you know if 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 people from the general public just call up their legislator and and you know tell them how important the department is to them and you know the services that we provide and and um you know the you know, the income that, that comes into the state through wildlife watching and, and hunting and fishing. I mean, you know, we're talking millions and millions of dollars that, that, that probably, if not more, you know, when you start combining consumptive and non-consumptive uses of wildlife. So, right. um, you know, we, we provide a, important services uh, to the state. So
0: gotcha. Yeah. Is that unique to New Hampshire? I mean, are, are you aware of other problems that may be happening in other fish and game departments or DNRs around the country?
1: yeah it's it's certainly not unique to new hampshire um there's you know and i don't know specifically which states um, have found you know new funding sources but it's uh it's a it's a fairly common problem for a lot of different states um, Fish and game or d n r agencies um some states um have have uh you know have have gotten things passed like you know getting portions of the room and nails tax um and they've they've kind of gotten away from or you know a lot of times it's it's um, there's been some sort of legislative action that, that starts getting them general fund money or, or, or some other so, some other form where they're not dependent you know, solely on license sales, and that's really um, you know, what we're we're trying to we're looking for a solution like that. But um, you know we've come up with some things that would that would potentially get us the money. It's just um, it's getting everybody to agree on it and, and getting the uh, the laws passed. So. Gotcha. Okay. But yeah, certainly not unique to New Hampshire. There's, there's a number of other states that have experienced their, and are experiencing the same things, but other states that, that again, you know, um, have, uh, have, have kind of shifted gears and, and have found a way out and, and, uh, you know, kind of changed from that traditional funding source. Gotcha. Okay.
0: Well, let's, uh, let's move on to another topic. Um, and this is a big one for New Hampshire because it's so unique to New Hampshire and that's the, the moose lottery. Yes. Yeah. I've, I had this article come across my desk. I sent it over to you so you could look at some more information on it. Uh, but I actually saw an article that said that New Hampshire might be considering canceling the moose hunt completely. Is that is that true?
1: Yeah, so that's, that is a little deceiving. Okay. Um, we, we wouldn't be considering canceling the moose hunt. Um, what we... Um, what we've done, so, so we're, we're kind of going through our, our 10-year planning process to set new goals and objectives for, for our game species. Um, and with moose, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly well known that, um, and again, this isn't just New Hampshire either, but, but, um, moose and, you know, areas like Minnesota, uh, Maine is experiencing the same things. You know, a lot of these, a lot of these areas are experiencing some die-off of, of moose. Um so so with the declines that we've been seeing in our moose population, um, um we set some some population level objectives of where we would try and you know, we'd like to try and maintain populations, but what we also did was we set um thresholds basically. If we dropped below a certain level, we would suspend um permit issuance, but we would not it would not be a cancellation of the hunt. It would be a suspension of permit issuance until the population rebounded to um a specific level in which and when it did that, uh, when it got back to that level for, um, I believe it's two, there's specific population levels, and I believe it's if they, if they stay at that point for two years, then permits would start to be issued again. Um, so it, it wouldn't really be a canceling of the hunt. It would just be a suspension of permit issuance until the population rebounded to a point where we thought it was um, you know, still healthy enough to, um, to be able to be harvested.
0: Uh, and let me just clarify that, because... The, the permit issues are based off of zones and zones are scattered. I forgot how many there are, but there's a bunch of them in the state and each zone, I think it's 23 or 22 zones that you pick when you, that you want to hunt. So you might Mm -hmm. shut off some in some areas based off of the population there. And and is that, is that accurate? Like just the zone, but not? Yeah.
1: Yep, yeah, that is accurate. So moose, so deer, deer are managed by wildlife management unit. Um, moose are a little bit different. They're managed by, uh, in management regions, which is kind of a, 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 a group of different management units. Um, so for moose, there's the Connecticut Lakes region, the North region, Central region, um, Southwest and Southeast. There may be one more in there, um, that I'm forgetting, but, um, so, so really, with with the management units with moose, we still issue permits by management unit, but that's really just to kind of disperse hunting pressure. Um, um, so, so you're correct though, but it, you know there could be a, a specific management region within the state that if it falls below that that level, that unit might not have permits issued. But if there's another unit that's still above those those levels, then the hunt would still okay. go on there. Um, the southeastern part of the state. Um, um, which is, uh, you know, the kind of that seacoast area similar to where we found those, those deer. Right. Um, that is our most heavily populated portion of the state. Um, so we're not making any proposals to, to suspend the hunt there. Um, um, at least not from a population, um, density perspective. It's more hunter satisfaction. Um, we really don't want to have any sort of high density moose population there just because of concerns with uh, vehicle collisions. There was, um, there was, I believe, uh, might have even been a fatal collision uh, a number of years back and, and, uh, when that had happened, you know, um, people basically, the public basically said they, they really never want to have that many moose down there. So, um, due to public safety concerns, you know, we'd probably continue a hunt down there, um, unless it got to the point where hunters just were, were, were unwilling to, to hunt down there. Gotcha. Um, so that, that unit is a little different than the rest of the state. Um, you know, another thing to keep in mind about moose, um in New Hampshire is that they're they're pretty much approaching the, the southern limit of their range, um especially in the southern part of the state. So you know, really southern New Hampshire, um, you know, it's not great moose habitat. Um you know, there's moose are really dependent on um early successional habitat. So it's you know in areas where they're doing a lot of cutting. Um and, and you know we don't have that really in the southern part of the state. It's starting to get a little warm for them down there as well. Um they're really built to withstand the cold. Um, so, so really, southern New Hampshire's not, not particularly a place where you'd ever expect to have a high density moose population, but, um, so, so again, you know, those, there's some differences in, in, in what the goals are going to be from, from area to area in the state, but, okay. uh, but yeah, so not, not a cancellation of the hunt, but just suspension of permits in, in areas that they drop below certain levels.
0: Okay. All right. That makes sense. Now, what is it that's causing the, the population decrease?
1: So, um, there's, there's, couple of different things um and uh the main thing so in the in the far northern part of the state um that um, we actually have a research project going on um it's it's similar to it's, it's similar to a project that they the department did back in i believe it was um early 2000s um and and we have uh you know a number of animals that that uh, were collared in the wintertime um we we hired a company that came out with the helicopters and and um, did some uh, some darting and, and, but predominantly net gunning the animals from the helicopters to get the collars on them. Um, basically what we're looking for is causes of mortality. Um, so we have a, a, you know, graduate student from the University of New Hampshire that's, that's kind of heading up the research portion of the project. And, um, you know, he's, he gets, uh, mortality signals from these collars when the animals die. And, um, you know, he's, he's basically trying to get that, get out there as quick as he can to, to determine an actual cause of death. So in the northern part of the state where that study's going on, um, the predominant cause of death that we 're seeing is from winter ticks um it 's a specific species of tick um that impacts moose it's it's uh it's not the same species as uh you know the black legged tick or the deer tick that, that most people are common with or or wood ticks or anything like that it's a it's its own species and um the the issue uh with with winter tick and moose and winter tick will get on anything that rubs up against them they 'll get on deer or bear or people. Um, but moose really didn't evolve with winter tick um the same way deer did um deer were kind of their primary um host and and they evolved with them. so deer are really effective at grooming against winter tick as as well as bears and and most other species so um when the when the ticks start getting on the you know other animals in the spring or, or excuse me the fall rather um they're they 're grooming them off right then and there, um, so they never develop large quantities of them. Uh, whereas a moose doesn't start grooming until the fall. Um, and what happens is these ticks are, excuse me, I, I did that in reverse again. The moose doesn't start grooming until the spring. Um, so these ticks uh, attach to the moose in the fall. Um, they stay on them all winter long. Um, so, so winter weather uh, doesn't impact the ticks because they get a nice, comfy, warm place on the moose all winter. Right. Um, and then in the springtime when they're adults, um, they start taking blood meals, um, mating and then dropping off their eggs. Well, Um, when these ticks are adults and they're taking blood meals, um, you know, they, they slow up to the size of a grape. Um, and, and there's been studies that show that average numbers of, of these ticks on a single moose is about 30,000. Um, and it can be as many as, uh, 150,000 on a single animal. Wow. Um, so you can imagine 150,000 ticks full of blood, you know, the size of a grape. That's a lot of blood that an animal is losing in, in really about a four week period. Wow. Uh, Yeah. So, um, it's, it's impacts calves, um mostly. Um, you know, typically the the most mortality that we see is in calves because um basically they're losing so much blood and, and, and you know during a time of year when they're they're energetically depleted um it's usually before spring green up comes so um, they just they just cannot replace that blood fast enough um so they die from anemia. Um, right. the other thing that we're seeing is so typically these these ticks they'll have uh, one of the, they're they're impacted by moose densities, so higher moose densities typically lead to more ticks um, but also weather um, and and you know we're seeing shorter um shorter winters so these shorter winters at the front and the back end it's doing two things it's allowing the ticks longer to attach to a moose in the fall mm-hmm. um, and it's also when they're dropping off in the spring, um, they're landing on dry ground as opposed to on snow um so so they the tick survival um, is much higher when they're landing on leaf litter as opposed to on snow. Um, and more of them are surviving, more of them are, are laying eggs. Um, so, so you get these years after these, these short winters, um, where, where you get these kind of, um, um, explosions and tick numbers and then, you know, subsequent large die-offs in the most population. So, and we're seeing die-offs more frequently than we had in the past because we're seeing, um, you know, less, um, or, or shorter winters mm. um, with, with, so that's that's what we're seeing last year. Um I believe they collared around 40, 40 or so animals both years. Um this we're in the second year of the study. The first year they saw about sixty percent mortality in the calves. Um Maine saw sixty-four percent or something like that, I believe. Maine's doing a similar study in conjunction with us. And, uh, this year, um, we thought we were doing, we were doing good, but, um, uh, really it was just mortality kind of kicked in later and now we're up. So I checked in with our regional he believes eagles are up around 70% mortality Holy smokes. Um, with our, with our calves. So it's, it's another bad year. Wow. So,
0: I mean, this, this causes a problem, um, uh, not only for the moose, but also for revenue for fishing game because.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. a, that's
0: a. I don't know how much money the the moose lottery brings in, but it seems like it is a, it had become more and more popular every year.
1: Uh, it had, yeah, entries. you know, cer- yeah, yeah. Certainly, you know, we would generate a fair amount of revenue from that, but uh, you know, again, our our primary concern is uh, is the resource and uh, and, and the moose population and. Uh, um, you know we 've consistently um backed off of permits um you know uh, for years and and really you know we 're to the point now that we 're issuing so few permits that uh it you know it's it 's having you know that 's really not having an impact on the population that the you know the primary cause of death we 're seeing is um well we 're seeing you know these die offs from winter ticks um you know particularly with the calves um but the other thing that we 're seeing is even on years where we don 't necessarily have a large die off um Yearling moose, for example, um, they're they're getting they're getting drained and they're not able to um, really they're not able to kind of get themselves back into good enough shape. Um, so productivity is dropping off as well in a lot of these areas. Um, a lot of our yearlings aren't reaching um, kind of the minimum weight that's required to uh, to successfully reproduce. So you know we're not recruiting uh, you know we're not recruiting a lot of calves into the population and also our yearlings. Are not um, they're they're unproductive. You know our twinning rates have dropped off. Um, um, Productivity rates have dropped off. So um, so really we're you know um, older moose tend to do okay. Um, They 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 don't get impacted quite as quite as heavily. But um, um, you know really you know you need that recruitment to keep that population going. And and that's really where we're being impacted. Okay,
0: So it's it's. it's more of the resource. You, obviously you're trying to protect that first and foremost, but when the resource absolutely, was yeah. vibrant and it was drawing a lot of attention, you had a lot of apps coming in. That's goes back to our second topic that we were covering is the state efficient game and oh, the revenue generation. So it, it kind of th- this tick <laughs> is becoming a, <laughs> a
1: large problem. It is. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so the other thing. Um, so, so ticks are, are the primary cause of uh, mortality that we're seeing in the northern part of the state. Um, that's where our study's going on. Um, we don't have any mortality studies going on, um, you know, further south or, or in the central portion of the state. Um, um, you know, our, our, our best moose habitats in the northern part of the state, so that's kind of where we're, we're most concerned. Um, you know, we'd like to check things everywhere, but, but, you know, we just don't have the money to do a project that large. But, um, what, what we think is going on as you move south, um, is that, uh, the, the other thing, um, that, that really impacts moose is brainworm. Hmm. Um, and brain worm, again, is a, it's a, it's a parasite that, um, kind of evolved with white-tailed deer, um, and, and white-tailed deer are kind of the primary host of brain worm. Okay. Um, so this is a, this is a worm, um, that is, um, what happens is it's, it's picked up by ground snails, and then as the ground snails climb vegetation, they're kind of inadvertently eaten by either a deer or a moose, um, and then that, that worm reproduces in there and, and travels through the spinal column and into the brain, and, um it 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 doesn't impact deer at all um for the most part deer you know deer really don't die from it um mm. except maybe in very rare occurrences but but again, cause they've evolved with this this parasite yeah. um but it's it's uh fatal in moose and and you know typically um kind of the North American experience with with brainworm is as you start to get deer densities that exceed about ten deer per square mile um you start to see increases in in moose mortality due to brainworm. Mm. Um, uh, and, you know, and with the exception of kind of the white mountain area of the, of the, uh, of New Hampshire and, and some of the, you know, further northern portions of the state, um, we have deer densities that are above 10 deer per square mile. Um, so, so we believe in, you know, the central part of the state and particularly the southern part of the state, brainworm might be having a big impact on, on the moose population. But again, um, you know, we don't have a mortality study going on there and, and brainworm is actually very difficult to, um, to identify, um, in an animal. Um, so it's, it's tough to say, but, but, you know, that's, that's one of the things that we believe is probably impacting moose uh, as you kind of move south and you start getting into higher deer densities.
0: Fascinating. So the, the deer population kind of affects the moose population, but not so much in a let's fight over food thing. This is, more of a disease type spreading situation that yeah uh, yeah yeah absolutely that's crazy so can moose does do moose affect deer habitat at all or is it just pretty much seems like deer dominate when it's when it comes down to it
1: yeah so um you know there's we don't really see that we there was some studies done um back in the 90s in new hampshire um where they looked at um how moose brows might impact um um, browse availability for deer and deer yards in the northern part of the state. And, and uh, um, you know, there was some potential there for some competition. Um But but by and large, um, you know, moose don't really act the same way as deer do. Their behavior is different in the winter. They don't, you know, unless it's a really, really, really severe winter, you know, moose really aren't yarding up the same way as deer do. So they kind of, uh, you know, they're in some different habitat types. They don't overlap quite as much as you'd expect. Um, so we don't really think that and and you know in the northern part of the state um our our deer densities are pretty low or you know our moose densities are they're our highest, but again they're not you know they're not overly high either um so so we don't really think that there's too much competition in terms of uh food availability between the two, but uh yeah certainly parasites is a is a concern um, particularly as you start getting into those those higher deer densities okay interesting
0: well that's it's just fascinating how moose and deer uh, they all affect each other in some way shape or form it's uh it's quite a cycle there let's uh let's move on to uh the the last subject of the of the day and uh i know dusty's been waiting for this one (laughs) okay so i can't we are the big buck registry dusty and i that this is us this is we are the big buck registry along with, you know, 155,000 hardcore deer hunting fans who love big deer. And yeah. I named it the big buck registry because I wanted to not exclude small racks. Um, mm-hmm. and because a big deer is a big deer is a big deer to me and to Dusty. However, Dusty lives in the land of large racks. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, in Ohio, there's large racks that are grown in Wisconsin and uh, Saskatchewan and uh, Kentucky. Why, why is it that New Hampshire is not known for large rack deer? Is it the the habitat? Is it the the way we hunt? What do you what do you attribute that to?
1: Yeah, it's it's primarily two things. It's it's habitat. Um, well, uh, it's habitat, which is which is really in New Hampshire, is impacted by our, our soil productivity and its our severe winters. Um, so New Hampshire is the granite state. Um, Unfortunately, and, uh, we have, you know, there's, there's a reason that everybody moved out, out west and abandoned, uh, you know, agriculture out here right. back in the 1800s, hundreds. It's because you can't grow anything. Um, and, and, you know, we, that's, that's predominantly, um, um, why we're, we're, we're probably, you know, not to say that we don't have big deer and we don't have deer with big racks. Um, we, we certainly do. Um, but but again, you know we're a small state with really unproductive soils um, and severe winters, and and you know with deer, um, particularly near the northern limit of their range, um, you know which New Hampshire is getting close to that. Um, their primary concern is is um, is putting on body weight um, to survive those winters, and, and antlers are kind of a luxury to deer in, in, in areas like that, yeah. um, particularly with unproductive soils. So. You know, their main focus is is put on that body weight, and then then they start, you know, then that energy starts going to antlers uh, when their body size gets big enough. Which is which is why, you know, as you head to northern latitudes, um, um, body size of deer increases right. um, from some of those southern areas uh, because it's more important for them to have those larger bodies. So, you know, we're we're more known for for large body deer um, as opposed to large antler deer. And again, you know, the fact that we're again we're sitting on a big slab of granite, um, it just you know it's not going to help with antler growth. Um, Recently, um, I was looking through some stuff, and and uh, our 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 GIS specialist had had put a map together for me a few years uh, a couple of years back, and it was uh, it was deer kill per square mile um, in the state, which you know it's not it's not you know 100% correlated with density, but it's a it's a pretty good index of, of, of deer density in the state. Um, I then found another map that was generated by I can't remember where, but uh, it was they used some information from the Department of Agriculture, and uh, it was it was the most productive um, agricultural um, land in, in different states. And uh, so when you when you looked at the two maps, they were pretty much identical. In, in the portions of our state where we have the most productive soils and the most productive agricultural land. Um, it matched up almost perfectly with our deer densities. Um, you know, which just kind of, it just kind of goes to show you that, um, you know, where our state is most productive, so is our deer herd. And, and again, so is our, I mean, for that matter, so is our turkey, um, our turkey flocks. You know, we see the same thing in the southeastern and, and part of the state along the Connecticut River Valley where, where soils are more productive and, and uh, winters are a little less mild is, you know, typically where we start seeing uh, more productive deer herds and turkey flocks. And then, mm. um, but, you know, certainly in the northern part of the state is, is where we kind of start seeing, um, you know, larger deer being, or kind of a more higher percentage of larger deer being taken. But, but that is more a function of, um, likely more a function of, of lower hunting pressure. So you get deer there that, that are living longer up there. So, you know, they're getting to those, you know, four and a half, five and a half kind of um, prime ages where they're, where they're getting those uh, larger, larger antlers. So yeah, you know, unfortunately, um, new hampshire is is never going to be an area like ohio or anything like that you know we just we don't have the we don't have the agricultural um areas we don't have the we don't have the productive soils and we got those severe winters but um but we do have you know we do have big body deer um and uh and certainly we have some large antler deer too just just you know per capita not as many as some of those um Midwestern states.
0: Right. I mean, with the exception of the, the clucky buck, which I think was an Allenstown buck when it was all said and done, mm-hmm. right? There's, uh, I mean, there must be some other large deer in the state that I, I'm not aware of just from not,
1: oh, yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. And I actually, I, um, Roscoe Blaisdell, um, yes. who runs the New Hampshire Antler Spell and Trophy Club, um, I was talking to him recently, um, and, uh, you know, he, um, he has the 200 plus pound. Um, you know, all, all the all the deer that are 200 pounds or above, um, you know, he registers them and enters them into the you know the, the kind of the trophy yeah. book that he of And he was actually, I sent him information, um, you know, from our harvest information, because because he only gets a proportion of the deer, you know, because not everybody that necessarily shoots a large deer registers it with him. Um, and he was always under the assumption. I believe he said that he thought about he got there was maybe 40% of people that didn't call him, um, and actually ended up being closer to about 60% of people who, who never, you know, 60% of people that that shot a buck that was 200 pounds or larger um, never registered it with the with the trophy deer program. Oh, wow. Uh, so there was quite a few more, um, you know, large body deer being taken at the state that that, that he was aware of. Um, I think uh part of the problem that he thought maybe was happening was that that people just were under the assumption that um you know when they registered at the registration station that 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 information was given to him but but they actually have to contact him or or uh fill out a sheet um, that that's in our hunting digest to kind of have it officially um recognized you know there has to be a witness and it has to be uh you know the weight has to be verified by someone at the station, so gotcha okay. Um, so I think a lot of people were, you know, might have been under the impression that if it's 200 pounds and you register it, it just gets recorded, but that's, that's not the case. So.
2: Hey, Dan, I'll, I'll be the first to tell you. I think it was, uh, Dean Vineyard from Northwoods Common Sense there We was talking to him, Jay, and he was off the mic and he said, man, I got a, I got a 180 last year and the year before I got a 200. And I'm thinking, my gosh, New Hampshire's the greatest state to hunt whitetails in. Right. <laughs> I, I was thinking it was talking about scores and th- then the conversation went on. I'm like, man, I'm I'm jealous, you know. I yeah. got a hundred I got a hundred and seventy four incher on the wall, but I don't have no two hundreds or one eighties. And yeah. I'm like, Man, that's a great buck, Dean, you know I was all jazzed up talking to Jay and Dean he's like, Yeah, two hundred pound buck's pretty good buck, eh? Yeah. And I'm like, What? Two hundred pounds? I thought you saw about antler size.
1: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> is it, it so, is, yeah
2: off. You know, New, New Hampshire definitely has got the big weights. I mean, every time I, we, we talk yeah. to somebody in New Hampshire, they're like, man, you know, this buck weighed 182, 10, 200. I'm yeah. like, wow, you know, that's a, that's a great buck. But what, what I don't understand is how do they grow the massive bodies with the small antlers? You know, that, that's something that throws me for a loop.
1: Yeah, you know and again it's, it's like it's like I said it's that you know all their all their energy is going into growing that body um um so so their antlers their antlers come second so right, um, right. you know every little bit of you know every little bit of energy that they're taking in it's going to grow in that body and then they start worrying about the antlers, so you know in areas where where um, you know there's there's not severe winters um, you know, they only have to grow, you know, their body size only have to get so large to be able to, to, to carry them through a winter. Um, so, so, you know, they can, they can more quickly kind of start divvying that energy out to, to start growing a larger rack. Um, you know, that on top of the fact that, you know, if you got a, if you got areas where there's, you know, just expansive agriculture going on, um, you know, there's, there's, they're just taking more energy in as well and they don't need to, you know, they can, they, they don't need to grow as large of a body. So there's, Um, There's less they're putting in there. There's more they're putting into their antlers, and there's just kind of more in general that they're that they're getting. And then they're not burning it up over the winter. Um, You know, they don't have to really cut into their fat stores like a deer in New Hampshire would. Um, So, so when the spring comes, you know they're you know they're right back to to a good weight. Whereas you know you know deer in New Hampshire after a severe winter, you know if it if it even recovers fully um, the following year, um, you know it's going to take a while. So it's just uh, you know it's a, it's a rough life um, for for really wildlife in, in in areas like this and you know it's kind of similar um, you know New Hampshire when you, you know we're talking about moose and deer and, and you know we're we're kind of at that nexus where we're you know we're right there at near the northern limit of deer range near the southern limit of of moose range and, and you know historically it's uh, you know animals don't they don't thrive near the near the edges of their range, um,
2: right Absolutely and, yeah that's self explanatory there. Let me ask you this. If you're, if you're a large landowner, there is a capability of doing the proper nutrition systems and planting the right things in New Hampshire to, to make the deer antler growth better. That, that, you know, that's kind of something I wanted to ask is, is it possible to take, uh, where the, the antler size is not the greatest in some areas there, and, and, and you know it's it's definitely noticeable. Is is there a possibility that you can take the the dirt there and turn it into some antler growing nutritional value dirt?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Pete. You know, there's certainly things that landowners can do. Um um I mean, there's. Um, you know you could you could get pretty intense with it you know where you could start throwing fertilizers down you know i'm more of a traditionalist for, for you know i kind of you know i'm I'm more about um you know trying to promote natural foods and things like that but, but that's not this you know that's not putting down anybody that, that, that does anything else that's i'm just a little more traditional that way but um certainly you know there's things people can plant um there's there's forestry practices people can do that 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 can increase um you know food that's on the that's on that's on their um on their property cutting you know promoting uh you know oak you know if you go in and do some thinning and and you know you get those oaks to grow and and release them from some competition they can produce more acorns and um you know if you get some some fruit trees you know you get an old apple um, you know some 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 kind of old apple fields or something that you can um, you can work with. So there's there's definitely things landowners can do um and and really you know in a state like New Hampshire anything that you're doing to to increase uh, you know food availability for these deer um is going to be beneficial to them um, and it's it's going to help when, you know if they can get more energy in them um you know it's it's either more you know, it's less that they have to go out and find. It's less energy they have to expend searching for it. And, and, you know, they're putting more in so they're, you know, they're, they're able to grow both their body and, and, and you know, their antlers faster. So, so yeah, there's, there's, there's certainly things people could do. Um, and, you know, any type of management like that you do on your property, whether it's promoting natural stuff or, you know, if you're, or if you're into food plots, it's, it's, it's going to help. Um, particularly if, you know, if, if um, you know, if, if you can combine that with, you know, if you, if you get some deer that are, uh, you know, getting up to some older ages, too, which you know, depending on where you are in the state, you know, southern part of the state, we get some pretty good um, hunting pressure down there. Um, but uh yeah, if those deer can get old, and you can you can get them some good some good browse and and some good uh, food availability, and, and certainly that the, they're going to get bigger than they would without it.
2: Absolutely. What's, uh, just throwing it out there, what's, what's the deer herd looking like in New Hampshire for the years to come?
1: Yeah, it's, it's looking good. Um, you know, we're coming off of, we're coming, we, we, you know, we had a stretch of extremely mild winters, um, which really helped our population grow. We had, um, I think in the last, well now, in the last six years, I want to say we had three of the mildest winters on record. Um, these past two winters, um, have been more severe. So, um, you know, that's, that's going to impact the deer. Um, this past winter, we don't really feel like it impacted them as much as you would have suspected from, from, uh, from how the winter played out. They, there was a really good acorn crop going into the fall. So deer were probably going in, in pretty good shape. Um, the snow came late. Um, so, you know, it didn't really come until the very end of January. And so the month of February is brutal, but, um, it was a pretty, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, it was a fairly short period of time with, with really bad weather. Um, and then on top of that, the snow was, was pretty fluffy, um, which was beneficial for deer to move around and, and not so much for predators. Um, you know, it's tough for a bobcat or a coyote to move and, you know, snow that's over their heads. Right. Um, whereas a deer can move through that a little more easier if it's not crusted over and they, you know, can, they can push through that. Um, the other thing we were seeing, um, you know, we all, all of the biologists do uh, deer yard surveys in the wintertime to kind of just keep it, keep an eye on that habitat as well as look for, you know, deer mortality. And, uh, you know, we were all seeing um, deer were staying pretty mobile and uh, they were able to actually dig for acorns throughout a good portion of the winter. Um, and winter ended kind of, you know, a little bit later than it has been. But again, um, so, so, you know, some areas still haven't seen green up, but uh, I know certainly at my house, um, I'm still... Stumbling around in the woods, slipping on acorns. There's so many out there. So, yeah. um, that, that, that acorn crop we had, I think, was, was very beneficial to them going into winter, um, and, uh, you know, both during and, and now after winter, um, you know, getting a good food source for them. That, that combined with the late snow. So, um, you know, we saw a reduction in harvest last year, um, which, which was expected. Um, we'll probably see another one this coming year, I would assume, with this winter. Um, but, uh, you know, that being said, um, you know, the deer herd has grown by about 20,000 or so over the last 10 years. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're consistently having, you know, kind of record harvest levels. Um, so, so the deer herd's looking good. They're healthy. Um, you know, we're, we're, our, antler you know, uh, beam diameters, our weights are consistent. Um, you know, we're not seeing really any declining trends in that. So health of the deer are really good. Um, so, so we're, we're looking good. Um, you know, you know, we don't, again, you know, because of where we are, you know, we don't have a lot of numbers, but, uh, our deer are very healthy. And, uh, you know, we got a lot more than, than, you know, we had 20 years ago or so. So they're, they're looking good. Awesome. They're
0: good. Dan, where's the next state record buck going
1: to come from? What county? Oh, geez. You know, that's, <laughs> that's tough. Um, that's a tough question because we seem to, uh, you know, we, we got it kind of spattering a deer all over the place that, you know, getting some nice, nice deer. Um uh, typically, they come from pittsburgh you know i I that would probably be your safest bet because that seems to be where kind of the majority of uh of you know our two hundred plus pound deer are getting taken um, yep. kind of up in that area, so you know just odds I would say probably there, but um you know you never know we get um you know sometimes you get in these southern portions of the state that are heavily developed. I know a couple of years ago there was a two hundred and forty some pound buck that came out of Bedford, New Hampshire. Um, you know, and likely it, it, you know, got into some of those suburban neighborhoods and, and, you know, it was basically a refuge during the hot season and you know, put some age on him and, and uh, he was able to get up to that big size. So,
2: hmm.
1: um, you, you never know. Um, you know, that's the thing. You never know where they're going to come from. And, and again, you know, we typically have, um, you know, I w when I'm looking at them, they're, they're kind of coming from all over the place. But, but the, the majority of the bigger ones usually do come from, from further north when you start getting into the, and not, you know, you get out of the White Mountains, um, although some get taken there too, but hunting pressure's just so low there, um, you're not seeing a lot getting taken there, but.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Well, before we let you go, Dan, I got a, just a couple quick questions. I want to see if we, you could leave us with, uh, some answers to these questions. They're basic, but, um, if you had to recommend just one tool that you need to bring into the woods with you every time you go in the woods, what would it be? A weapon. 11, good, I like that one, that's a good
1: answer right. You're not going to get a deer without one That's a good point um, um, No, geez, boy um, you, know, you know, I, I guess it's, it's not really I guess it's not really something you're bringing out with you It's something you're doing ahead of time um, And I guess it's, it's uh, you know, a, a good map And, uh, you know, knowing what direction The wind's coming from Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit more on the you know, I'm a little more on the side of paying attention to, you know, wind and and things like that than I am about uh, worrying about, um, you know, scent control clothing or, or, you know, a really, really great camo pattern. Um, You know, I've gotten extremely close to deer, stinking to high heaven during some of my field work, and it was because, you know, the wind just was favoring me. So, uh, you know, I think that's one of the most important things to keep in mind. Gotcha.
0: And if if you could recommend one book for deer hunters, which, which would it be?
1: Oof. Jeez, that's a tough one, okay. most of the stuff that I've read over the years has been uh research related um so I guess you know i-, I guess that that's what I would recommend uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend a book um get into some of that those research papers because uh you know there's there's a lot of good stuff to be learned that can that can Canadian hunting mm-hmm. um by reading some of those papers. some of them are a little tough to follow um but but there's some good stuff out there that uh you know if you can if you can start finding some of those you know you find one and there's references in the back to all the others it makes it easier to find them but um you know there's a lot of important stuff that you can learn about deer behavior and, and uh um, that 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 is very beneficial if you're uh, you know you can apply that in, in your hunting skills yeah
0: that, that makes sense research papers and where would we find some of these papers if we wanted to check them
1: out um you know it's it, it can be tricky To some of them um you know you need to get subscriptions too but uh you know, really, if you get on the internet and you just start, um, you know, you just start Googling something that you might be interested in, um, you know, usually you get some stuff that starts popping up and eventually you find something. But, um, you know, I do know, I will say that, that QDMA's website, you know, they're pretty good at, um, at, at, you know, giving some, some research-based references. But, uh, you know, so that's maybe a starting point. But, uh, you know, once you start getting into some of them, it starts getting easier to find others. But, you know, Um, I typically would get them through, uh, through the university. Um, now that I'm not there, we got some, some, you know, subscriptions to some of these journals from the, from the department. So, um, you know, wildlife society, um, so the wildlife journal, um, um, is a good one. Um, but, uh, there's a, there's a site, I believe it's bio one. Um, and that's, uh, um, you get a, a, a. I don't think you necessarily. Not everything is. You know, you get the full story, but you get the abstracts, and then you know, if you get the names, you can start finding uh, links to them in other places. So, and sometimes too, uh, you know, like DNR websites, um, we'll we'll have some information with links to to research papers like that as well. Sure. It, yep. The other thing to do is, um, you know, if you you got a local uh, cooperative extension. Um, so if, if there's a university extension program, um, there's likely somebody there that can, uh, or you you know, or just your fish and game department, you can call up the biologist and maybe they can get you, you know, some specific references. Gotcha. Excellent.
0: Dusty, any, uh, last questions for Dan before we let him go? Uh, no, sure don't, Dan.
2: You know, it, uh, we really appreciate you joining us.
0: Yeah,
1: no, it's problem. My pleasure. Dan, how, where, where can
0: we reach you if, if people are listening to the show and they have further it, questions? Can they reach out to you at the fish and game department somehow?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The the number to our wildlife division is uh, 603-271-2461, um, and they can just call up and ask for me.
0: Excellent, man. Thanks for joining us on the Big Buck Podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't thank Dan enough for joining us and going deep into all those subjects. Uh, I, I wanted to know a lot more about what happened out there in, in Kingston. And, and now we know.
2: Yeah, it's uh, you know one of them subjects that was huge for a lot of readers. It was. Uh, you know, it, it, it's very informal, but there were some some untied loose ends with that. Right, and, and I feel like we chased after that
0: and maybe tied up some of them loose ends. Yeah, Dan was very informative. Glad we learned a lot about all the subjects between what's going on at fish and game and uh, raising money and the moose hunt and how it relates to deer. I didn't realize that, you know, the, the deer and moose habitats and, um, certain, uh, biologies and, and, and infectious diseases actually carry over from species to species where it affects the moose way more than it affects the deer and the deer are actually the carriers. I had no idea about that. Um, and then we just, uh, I think we kind of sealed the deal about, New Hampshire being the granite state, nothing grows here, so there's no chance of having a giant antler in New Hampshire for the most part other than certain certain areas. Yeah, it's almost like you got to build a buck there. I agree. Chubby Tine's tip of the week. Do we have one? Yeah,
2: you know, we do. And uh, I'm, I'm going to get into a, a little preparation for – a few months away that the whitetail season's coming, you know. And, and here on the big buck ratio, we're all about big bucks, you know. If, if you get a moment and you you've still got tree stands out in the woods, you need to go and and give your straps a little bit of a release on letting the tree have some room to grow. Mm, good one. And, yeah, that that's something that more and more and more and more I see that you know. Oh man, I went out there and my trees all my stands all dug in the tree. Well, what what good does that do? Right. You know, that opens up the, the tree for some damage to the bark and the internals of the tree, seeing moisture all the time. So, you know, take, take a uh, couple hours, one. Saturday morning. I know everybody's turkey hunting, but if you're turkey hunting, you're used out in the woods that you're deer hunting in. Take take a few minutes and, and throw your safety harness on, climb up, and, and just release that ratchet strap. Take that pressure off, re tighten it down enough where you can climb down safely and, and let it be for the summer. Right. You know, and then we'll get into fall preparation later. And I'll remind you then that, you know, hey, if you, you give your tree room to grow, you need to go re tighten up everything and check everything out. You should do that naturally. Safety first, but let's, uh, let's think about the trees at the Stands hanging in all summer.
0: Good point. It's a good point, and often overlooked. We often forget about those during that, this time of year.
2: So. Absolutely, yeah. You
0: know, to- well, where can we? Uh- find you dusty
2: yeah go to chubby tines facebook.com forward slash chubby tines outdoors you can send me an email dusty at big buck com. jay where can the people reach you when you're not on the mic
0: well we can uh, you can find me at big buck you can always shoot me an email jay at bigbuckregistry.com. of course dusty we are now featured on the outdoor podcast channel which is a uh, uh, channel on itunes but also at Outdoorpodcastchannel.com. You can find us over there. Um, as far as going to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash big buck registry. Twitter is twitter.com forward slash big buck registry. You can find us on the prepper broadcasting network as well. And if you'd like to submit the giant buck that you shot over the last year, or maybe even if it's a throwback Thursday from way back, send that into it's big buck forward slash my buck. And I think that's it, Dusty. Did I forget anything?
2: <laughs> big buck, big buck everywhere, big buck. Yeah, you want uh, if you've got a small business and you're looking to uh, sponsor, Jay, you want to mention something about that?
0: Absolutely. We have set up a, a new sponsorship situation here. So if you are uh, an outdoor podcast lover, and if you have a product that you think would be suited to the outdoor deer hunter and – you would like to get some exposure, and you haven't done so yet. Maybe a small company, big company, or anything in between. We do have a sponsorship set up now, and you can go and check out all of our rates, find out how many downloads we get, find out what, who our people are, who our listeners are, who our fan base is. You can go to bigbuckregistry.com forward slash sponsor, and you can download the infographic right there, give you a quick synopsis of what what's going on behind the scenes, and you can also... Uh, Get all the the little details about who listens to this show, who's on our Facebook page, and find out who our Big Buck Nation truly is. And it's all right there at bigbuckregistry.com forward slash sponsor. Um, I think that's it, man. Awesome. Yeah, that was a good show. Absolutely. I'm Jay Scott. I'm Dusty Phillips. This is the Big Buck Registry's Big Buck Deer Hunting Podcast. See you next week.
2: Can't wait.